The Third Magpie by M.S. Clements Read by Hannah Timms Episode 1 A Shorn Heart The shorn moon, trembling indistinct on her path, frail as a scar upon the pale blue sky, draws towards the downward slope. Some sorrow hath worn her down to the quick, so she faintly fares along her foot-searched way, without knowing why she creeps persistent down the sky's long stairs. From Brother and Sister, D. H. Lawrence Evie Insomnia has a way of opening the void, filling it with illusion and voices from long ago. Even Maya's soft puffs of righteous sleep cannot distract my brain from flooding with scenes from that summer holiday. My teen self echoes inside me. Jump, Finn, jump! Even if I could erase that memory, I won't. I crave it. That chilled water lapping against me as swimmers power through lengths of the pool. Untamed hair escapes the sodden scrunchie, tickling the edge of my mouth as the locks stick to my cheek. I need to be that young woman again. I need to be able to say one more time, Don't be scared, Finn. I'm right here. I lie in bed hankering for my youth, but these flesh and bones must creep forward. With the irritating heat of maturity passing, I curl up once more against my wife's comforting body. And now I'm thirsty. Hopeful water will end my restlessness, and conscious not to awaken her, I roll on my side and begin a fingertip search of the bedside table. I pause. The silver picture frame is cold against the heat of my skin. I spread out my palm, reaching for that young man, a captive in time and place, make-believing I can push through, touch him, and bring him back to safety. It doesn't work. I find the tumbler and take a sip. And still, I miss him. I flip over my pillow and I lie back down, mentally listing all of the day's jobs. A new vet starts today. Make some cakes. Change these sheets. Night sweats create so much washing. Is it parents' evening tonight? I think so. They'll be teenagers soon. I ought to organize a party. How old would Finn be? No, how old is Finn now? Definitely is. I should know that. I should. I, I really should. I shuffle around, trying to get comfortable. My nightie rucks under me and the straps are cutting. I fling it off. My body relaxes, and Finn waits for me in that in-between world where dreams and nightmares sit on the horizon. Today, he is the seven-year-old boy, frightened and uncertain. There is an angry bruise on his shin, and his feet shift back from the edge. Ball-like fists pound his thighs, and those eyes... His vibrant blue eyes brimming with childhood fear. My memory calls out to him. Come on, darling, jump, you can do it. I'll catch you, I promise. This time will be different. This time he'll jump. I know he will. He'll jump, and skinny arms will envelop me. I'll clamp him to my chest. His heartbeat, his panic, and joy, they'll thump against my skin just like it did before. Downstairs in the kitchen, Petra whines. Perhaps she misses her sibling, too. I squint at the pile of clothes flung onto the bedroom chair, 
morphing those fabric peaks and valleys into the mountain range that loomed behind the holiday resort. Dad's optimistic words reverberate off the rocky escarpment to haunt my days. Sometimes these things happen. He'll grow out of it in time. I slide out of the bed, and Maya slips her arm into the empty space. I'm grateful she doesn't wake. I'd only sink back into her embrace, wallowing in the comforting lies she'd whisper in my ear. Lies that bar my desired recollections from gate-crashing my life. And I want those memories. I want them to become real again. I want to hear those children running riot and screeching, laughing and plunging into the pool from every angle. I want the goosebumps that race down my arms with the chattering of my teeth. Downstairs, the arger warms me, while Petra noses my bare feet, slowing our exit. I step into the pre-dawn air, heavy with the scent of Angel's trumpet. With all the ungainliness of a puppy, Petra sits obediently on top of my foot, unsure where to put her legs, her attentive marble-brown eyes watching me. I clip on the leash and banish all self-indulgent thoughts. I must allow heartache to exist inside the mundane. We emerge from the somber cover of the woods and wait, catching our breath. Petra chewing her saliva-soaked tennis ball and me on the wooden stile. Dawn claws away the night sky, splitting its darkness with grey and tangerine scars. In the village, blinking lights announce that the lives of others must also continue. Velvet pads of infant excitement drum past me, injecting a dose of brief happiness to soothe my life of work, parenthood, and loss. I delude myself. I make excuses, replaying the scene expecting a different outcome, but Andy is always there dictating the conclusion regardless of my actions. He'll ring on Wednesday. He always does. My stomach tightens at the prospect of his call. Insincere inquiries followed by complaints about Mum, her eccentricities and cyber-activism. He'll demand I return to Melbourne, as though I'd ever convince her to tone down the protests and the letter-writing. I can't change her. No one can. If she refused to listen to me when Finn was little, why change now? No. Andy will have to deal with her himself. What about his friends in foreign affairs? All those useful government contacts. God forbid one of them should make inquiries on our behalf. No, Andy won't push them for an answer. Can't annoy them. That's bad for business. Andy the businessman. The firm and steady hand of Finlay Communications. Andy the bully. The sadistic shit. Determined to terrify our little brother. I don't understand it. Why that pool? Why that day and that incident? There are so many others to decipher, yet my head chooses to repeat Finn struggling under Andy's tight grip, tears dripping into the pool. Andy is savoring the torture, his hissing threats carrying over poolside noise. Sink or swim, weirdo. I say sink, just like before. Dad's feeble censure drips off his muscular back along with the chlorinated water. I intervene, make my threats, and whisper his sordid little secrets back into his ear. He concedes defeat and releases Finn with foul-mouthed insults. Where's the mystery? 
Andy was Andy, and I dealt with it. There was nothing to warrant a lifetime of anger and mistrust. Besides, Finn's difficulties were nobody's fault, not really. The accident at the brook, his silence, the illness, none of that had anything to do with Andy. We all made mistakes. It's my mind playing tricks on me again, just early morning misgivings, conjuring conspiracies where none exist. He's my brother, and he loves us. We should go home. We should move on. I'll tell Andy on Wednesday. We will go back. Christmas! Yes, the perfect opportunity. Dad will be thrilled. He hates the December gloom. It's the rain against the sitting room window. And it's the way he goes cold if the mobile rings just after relaxing with his evening drink. Seeing the twins will make all the difference. We've never had a Christmas together at home. Yes, we'll go at Christmas. I'll tell Meyer as soon as I get back. We'll return to Melbourne. Cara and Mikey will enjoy it, decorating the house and opening the abandoned cards, even if Mum hides in her study refueling her unhappiness with gin. But what if Mum had listened to me, or to Dad? What if my phone had been charged when Finn tried to call? What if we'd got help earlier? What if... Oh, for goodness sake, this isn't healthy. Everyone can see it, even me. Determination marches me across the wheat field, morning light giving it a creamy apricot hue. I'm hungry at the thought of it becoming fresh bread. My stomach rumbles in anticipation when I ruminate on holiday plans. I stop. Hot sweat rises within to accompany the revelation. What am I thinking? I must protect them. We can't go back at Christmas. It's not the right time. The children will remind them of Finn, and Mikey might ask questions. Mum and Dad are too old to go through that again. No, we'll go another time when it's easier to organize cover vets. Perhaps we'll go in the spring. I'll think about it. There's no rush. Petra pants with fulfilled exhaustion. Her ears prick up with the tolling church bell ringing out with the precision of a funeral mass. By the verge, a magpie pecks at the remnants of a mouse. I shudder with irrational superstition. Good day, Mr. Magpie, I say over Petra's barks. Our way is cleared of the malevolent corvid, and we trot along the path to the back door of the bakery, where our usual mug of tea and bowl of water awaits us. If the lives of others must continue, then, I suppose, so must mine. New Albany. Normality is hard work. Life is exhausting. But stop for a moment, even for a second, and allow the absurdity of our behaviour to cloud our thoughts. Then all will disintegrate. This hard-won illusion of a normal life will disappear, revealing the extent of our own deception. Sophie. After 16 years of marriage, every nuance of Finn's arrival was imprinted deep within her. The click of the garden gate, that huff when he lifted his bike onto the hooks, and the frustrated jangling of the stubborn door handle. Sophie was already filling the kettle by the time she heard the anticipated thud of his bag hitting the table. Warm hands caught her waist. 
followed by an affectionate kiss brushing her cheek, that oft-repeated routine always ending with a request to satisfy his innocent addiction. Any chance of a cup of tea? Finn dragged out a chair and emptied his bag of exercise books. Elbows on the table and his shoulders hunched with resigned compliance, he stared forlornly at the pile before him. Another year trapped in a job he did not choose. But for Sophie's sake, content to fulfil his allocated role. How did the meeting go? She asked, mustering as much fake cheer as possible. Austin, again. Finn plucked a book from the pile, closing the conversation down with his deliberate flicking through the pages. Sophie gently patted his shoulder in silent commiseration as she passed him to fetch a couple of mugs from the opposite cupboard. He'd cheer up with a cup of tea. But when she looked back at him, a barely audible expletive escaped her mouth. His fingers were splaying out, filling the screen with the bold headline of the daily briefing. He didn't hear her. Sophie watched him nudge his glasses to the top of his head, all the while her teeth nervously nibbled away at the tender flesh of her bottom lip. She should have closed the tab the minute he arrived. Finn squinted, and in Sophie's shoulders muscles contracted, developing another knot of pain. She rubbed her neck. At some point he would find out. It was inevitable. But even rational thought could not soothe her angst. Finn's back rose and fell with his breaths, gaining pace and catching up with her own rising unease. You should get your eyes tested. I'm sure your sight is getting worse. I'll make you an appointment. She'd used the same tactics countless times, but this time her distraction technique failed. Finn frowned. There was no reply, only the scrape of a chair as he left the table to seek the solitude of the sitting room. Behind her, the kettle whistled with piercing urgency to warn of the pressures that lurked beneath the surface of normality. She knew how he'd react. And what did she offer him in exchange for her guilt? A hand to hold and a cup of tea. Sophie followed her husband through to the sitting room, pushed his legs off the sofa and sank her miniature frame into his warmth. She searched his face for a forgiving smile. It came, then disappeared like a mirage in the desert. His arm had dropped onto her, so she snuggled in closer. With her fingers entwined in his, she lifted his hand to her mouth, placing a delicate kiss on each knuckle. Why do they keep doing this to me? To us, said Finn. All affection dissolved away with his question. Wary of the inevitable argument, she removed his arm from her shoulder. Criticism was counterproductive. The permanence of decisions made by New Albany's elite must remain unchallenged by dissent. It is the will of the people. It's not personal, darling. It's not against you and me. Not against you. No, you're right. She reached for his arm, trying to recreate ordinary happiness. It's just the situation. After all, the article said it would only be a temporary measure. That's something, at least. Sophie was well aware that there were never temporary measures. New regulations would be adhered to, just like all the previous ones. Yet one more inconvenience, nothing more. The article said it's in response to terrorist attacks in AZ-12. Apparently, insurgents are hiding in other area zones. It's only until they're caught. It's for our safety, after all. Sophie parroted the official line. Hopeful her reassuring smile would diminish his worries and disguise her fear. Finn tugged his arm from her grasp. 
Well, if that's what they say, then of course it must be true. Silly me, his sarcastic reply stabbing back at her. Sophie handed him his tea, shuddering when his heavy metal bangle struck the porcelain, producing a bell-like ring to announce who he was and what he was. The digitally interned alien, obliged to keep that bangle permanently locked onto his wrist. Finn instinctively slid it back up his arm and pulled down his sleeve, out of sight but never far from his consciousness. I'd better start rereading those wretched books. I just wish there were something else to study for a change. As much as I, I love Jane's work, six years is, is quite enough. Why don't you suggest something else? asked Sophie, grateful for the new topic of conversation. And what influence can I have over the curriculum? Even if I were allowed to make a, a recommendation, I can, I can hardly be seen to corrupt the girls. Let's face it, what's the point? There's, there's barely a decent novel left on the approved list. With nothing more to add, Finn pushed himself off the sofa and retreated to the kitchen. In the corner of the sitting room, the digital assistant, Theo, bleeped, its green light reverting to red. Sophie glowered, wishing she had the courage to destroy it. Instead, she clutched her fragile china cup and sipped her herbal tea. Twenty-two nineteen. Her eyes were watering from the undisturbed vigilance of the oven clock. Twenty-two twenty. The red digits blinked back at her. Twenty-two twenty-one. And another minute slipped past. She shut her eyes, willing time to stop. Twenty-two twenty-two. All the twos like ducks in a row. She laughed. Was it the caffeine that was sending her to that place of contorted sanity? She rarely drank coffee. Yet there she was, supping on that bitter black stimulant. Her hand trembled with the weight of the cup. A reaction to the drink or the fear of uncertainty? She no longer knew or cared. Finn wasn't home. In the hallway, the antique clock mocked her further, its rhythmic tick-tock verbalising. Finn's gone. Finn's gone. She fought to ignore it, forcing herself to tune into the surrounding silence beyond the kitchen door. Not even the outside world could drown out the pessimism consuming her. Mini whirlwinds spiralled leaves up into the air, their dry, brittle edges becoming ghostly fingernails scratching against the panes in the door, demanding entry. In the distance came the rattle of car tyres jouncing on pitted lanes. It was so faint, almost imagined, but it wasn't. Other sounds were hushed. Only the turning wheels existed. They stopped. Then came the silence. Her accelerating heartbeat anticipated the knock at the front door. Deep within her, guts twisted and cowered beneath the rising screams of her inner voice. How will you cope? How will you cope? A car door opened and slammed shut, and then another. Two of them. They always came in pairs. She put the cup down and gripped the edge of the table, steadying herself as she rose from the chair. How will you cope? Without him, that was when she heard it, the click of the garden gate. Sophie raced to the back door in time to see the red lights of a departing vehicle and a thin shadow hurling a bicycle to the ground. Finn, thank God, where have you been? 
His hug felt tighter than usual. Pushing him back, she saw his tired and drawn face lit up by the kitchen light. There was so much she wanted to say, but anger and relief could wait. Where were you? I've been sick with worry, she whispered, avoiding the known trigger words in case Theo might activate. Sorry, darling, I, I got a puncture. I was trying to fix it, but it got late, and I just didn't realise the time. Finn, it's half ten. Sophie swallowed back the urge to yell at her husband's apparent nonchalance. His eyes told her a different story. He was frightened. The heartbeat pounding its drum inside her ears became louder, faster. He was acting, saying it was just one of those things, except it wasn't. He was hiding the truth. Just one of those things was not an option for the likes of Finn. Free of her grip, he squeezed past her and sat down at the kitchen table. He appeared engrossed by the little flowers of the oilskin tablecloth. This was Finn. He always told her the truth. Neither spoke. Sophie remained in the open doorway, a queasy unease making her cling onto the frame. She put it down to the sickly scent of the Nicotiana instead of all the more lightly explanations that were bombarding her brain. At the table, Finn lay his head down onto his arms. His face turned towards her. And there they were, those simple words, uttered in his soft voice. The truth that she dreaded. The truth that kept her awake at night. They arrested me. Theo's light illuminated the kitchen, distorting the space with its spectral green. She didn't give Finn time to say another word. She yanked him up by his arm, directing him back outside, and by the dim light of the torch dragged him down the garden until they reached the steamer chairs beneath the apple trees. I think you had better tell me everything. Don't leave anything out in case I need to get Dad involved. Finn slumped back into the chair. You won't need to call your father. I am pretty certain there won't be a follow-up or any charges. Too agitated to sit, Sophie paced about. Above her, the little beam of light vaulted from branch to branch as the torch bounced on his restless leg. He was nervous. He was bending the truth. She stopped moving. No, you can't be arrested for a puncture. What happened? Violation of the curfew. What? I told you it, it got late. I'm subject to the new curfew laws, or, or have you for, forgotten? I... Uh, no, Finn. There must be more to it. Work finished hours ago. It was just... well, I don't know how it happened. You need to tell me, Finn. I need the details. There's nothing to tell. There was a meeting, you know, the usual. Something about curriculum changes, and Frank Harrison just wouldn't stop rambling on about the lack of sports priority. The, the head was trying to sort stuff out. I, I remember thinking I, I had plenty of time to get home, despite the overrun, but then Carl wanted to chat. He, he seemed upset, and I, and I couldn't walk, just walk off. There was still time, but I guess fate had other ideas. I did get a puncture on the way home. I, I'm, I'm sorry, darling. I honestly didn't realise the time. Sophie sat in the neighbouring chair, shaking her head in disbelief. This was not what Finn had signed up for. Nobody had. I know it isn't your fault. 
Her eyes were adjusting to the dark and she watched him wrap his arms around himself. It was mild for September, yet he was shivering. She searched out his hand, vigorously rubbing the back of it to warm him as she spoke. I don't get it. It can't have been that late, and even with those delays, the guys in the guardhouse know you. They wouldn't have arrested you for that. Are you sure there's nothing else? Temporary security measures to fight the insurgency, said Finn, mimicking the daily briefing newsreader. And I am the unfortunate collateral damage. Even so. New recruit. He spotted the bangle. His chance to shine, I suppose. What about Sergeant Mason? He'd have sorted it. He was out, drunks fighting at the Packers Inn. The guy was on his own and, and didn't have a clue who I was. Finn stifled a small chuckle. The lad couldn't even figure out how to turn on the, the computer. Really? How can you not know that? I blame the teachers. Yeah, they're the root of all incompetence. She gave his arm an affectionate punch. What else? He took so flipping long, I just wanted to get the whole thing over and done with, get charged and then go home. I even had to show him how to use the microchip reader. God knows what they do teach them. Not computer skills, muttered Sophie under her breath. Possibly not. Anyway, by the time we got to the charges page on my file, Sergeant Mason walked in. When he saw me, he gave the recruit such a filthy look, I, I almost felt sorry for the boy. Almost. There was mirth underlying his words, the revenge of a powerless man. Sophie smiled too. So, was that Sergeant Mason's car in the lane? Yeah, he bought me and the bike back, but not before shutting me in a cell and putting the fear of God into me. I was loudly reminded of my unique privileges and that they can be removed as easily as they are given. I am the model alien, the alien of ministerial importance, that shining example of how well the system works, a credit to the new Albany proving that the DIA programme is a magnificent success. But, above all, it is my duty not to be a disappointment to my father-in-law. Sophie bit her lip at his sarcasm. The faint humour that appeared barely seconds earlier had been banished with the cracking pretense of the model alien. Her sticky tape of lies would not be up to holding him together for much longer. Thank you for listening to this production of The Third Magpie. To support our work, please consider buying or gifting a digital copy of The Third Magpie from Amazon or post a review on Goodreads. Register at pageupbooks.co.uk to stay in touch with future projects. That's pageupbooks, P-G-U-P, like the key on your keyboard, P-G-U-P, books.co.uk. Thank you.